Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Uh, quick reading and then we'll do a Q&A. And uh, just to preface this, the book is written in the first-person voice of a soon-to-be 30-year-old blonde woman. So please imagine me <laughs> as her. Um, okay. The Abadi House was transformed for the New Year's festivities. The Persian New Year, Nowruz, is celebrated at the exact moment of the spring equinox, synchronized precisely to the change of season when the sun crosses directly over the equator someplace in the world. Through my years as an honorary Abadi, I had celebrated the New Year at a variety of times, once at 8.11 in the morning during Layla's usual Pilates session, once at 4.55 in the afternoon as the sun shone brightly onto the Abadi's yard, causing the ladies to sweat through their silk and linen, and my personal favorite, 4.21 a.m., when all of Los Angeles was dead but for the crystal meth addicts and the 24-hour security patrol protecting the homes of the rich and famous. I remember thinking that Los Angeles was a city where businesses got away with being called 24-hour fitness and closing at 10 p.m. But when Noruz was in the middle of the night, the usual rules did not apply, and stretches of Brentwood, Beverly Hills, and Westwood were bumping with music and celebration. In the Abadi home on that dark night, festivities were in full swing. A DJ was playing Persian pop hits, ladies were dancing with their grandchildren, and Layla was delivering her usual toast consisting of a reading from Omar Khayyam. This particular year, the Persian New Year fell at the civilized hour of 9.32 p.m. on March 20th, which made Layla and Hossein very happy. They didn't have to cancel Pilates or golf, respectively, and they were able to serve dinner at the proper hour. Layla rightly felt that there was something disgusting about scarfing down sabzi polo mahi, herbed rice and fish, for breakfast or in the middle of the night. Every year, the Abadis took the opulence of their festivities one step further than the previous. As always, the valet boys stood outside to park the guest Bentleys and BMWs. The entry was occupied by the Haftseen, a table on which seven items, starting with the letter S, were displayed. Everything in the tiny subculture of Terangelis was a competition. Children, clothes, income, travel. The denizens of this tiny universe vacationed in the same spots and dined at the same Italian restaurants, always looking for an opportunity to one-up each other as they exchanged kisses. In the weeks preceding Noruz, Layla visited her friends and assessed their half-seen tables so she could make sure her display would be more beautiful, more opulent, more impressive, just more. 
This year, the half scene was an especially glorious work of art. On an antique embroidery, she placed lentil sprouts, wheat germ pudding, dried oleaster fruit, garlic, an apple, sumac berries, and vinegar. They represented rebirth, affluence, love, medicine, health, and patience, all the qualities and virtues one is meant to take into the new year. But Layla being Layla, she couldn't settle for just seven S's, and so she liberally added a few more items to the table. Some dried nuts, only those whose Persian names begin with S, candles, a mirror, some decorated eggs, goldfish. On most half-seen tables, worshippers place a holy book, a Quran, a Bible, or a Torah. Layla's table always had vintage poetry instead. This year it was Hafiz. Layla regarded the ancient Persian poets as gods and goddesses, emblems of a time when secularism, Sufism, and Zoroastrianism coexisted in her country. For Layla, the poets represented the true roots of Nowruz before the Muslims invaded her beloved Persia when wine flowed freely and a woman's body was celebrated. The piece de resistance was an imposing gold coin, the profile of the Shah engraved into it. This sekke, representing wealth, was a gentle reminder to the guests that the Abadis, too, had it all. Beyond the half-seen table, the party began. Layla transformed her garden into a paradise of revelry. She had laid down a dance floor interspersed with squares that lit up when stepped on, making everyone feel like Michael Jackson circa Billie Jean. And she even eschewed the customary DJ for a live band that miraculously played songs in French, Spanish, and Farsi. Much as Layla had trained Rosa Maria to cook a perfect chorist, I could imagine Layla supervising the band, making sure they could perform perfect renditions of Sultan Qalb, Parole et Parole, and Gypsy Kings. As Bobby and I entered the party. Bamboleo was the band's choice, and while the lead singer's Spanish accent didn't sound as authentic as those of the parking guys outside, the beat still got the party going. Babak, Layla, finally, Layla called out as she approached us, martini glasses in hand. She gave us both a kiss on each cheek. Her giddiness suggested she had already imbibed one, maybe two drinks. When I first got to know the Abadis, I always expected that their demons would come out with a little alcohol but I was wrong. Layla was a textbook happy drunk. Not even tequila unleashed the nightmares of her past. <laughs> she led us to the bar as I wiped her lipstick off Bobby's cheek with the palm of my hand. You have to try the drink of the night, she said. It's an apple cilantro martini in honor of no ruse. I invented it. I explained to him that I wanted the drinks to be made with things that begin with S, Seeb, Sabzi. Layla flashed two fingers to the bartender who immediately poured two concoctions for Bobby and me. I took a sip and to my surprise, apple and cilantro didn't mix so badly with vodka. I could see Bobby's eyes linger a beat too long on the bartender, whose thick, hairy forearms demanded attention. A star of David dangled over the tufts of black hair left visible by the open buttons of his crisp blue shirt. He was no doubt one of the many Persian Jews who lived in Tarangelis. Bobby, a descendant of Muslims but raised in complete agnosticism, always had a thing for Jews, especially Israelis. Personally, I thought his Israeli fetish was some kind of complicated, descending, yet self-hating Persian thing. I mean, Iran's president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who Bobby referred to as Ahmadinejad, even though he, have to, he kept having to explain to people who corrected him that Ahmad meant idiot in Farsi, hosted a convention of Holocaust deniers in Bobby's lost homeland. I loved the idea that getting down on his knees and servicing Zionists was Bobby's little rebellion against the idiot and all the Ayatollahs. Or perhaps Bobby wasn't aware of the irony, and his lust just had a keen and wicked sense of humor. 
One by one, the hellos began. Bobby and I had to make our way around the room to kiss and make small talk with every one of Layla and Hossein's friends. We held hands as we circled the room, really not for the show as much to steel ourselves against the inevitably painful small talk. Tannaz Maliki approached us. Tannaz's face got tighter each time I saw her. Her eyes more cat-like, her cheekbones more pronounced. Tannaz was the funhouse version of Layla, whereas Layla got discreet cosmetic surgery, a refreshing nip and tuck. Tannaz deformed her face, never beautiful to start with. Whereas Layla wore designer clothing that suited her body and her age, Tannaz picked clothes that were too colorful and too tight. It didn't matter that her outfit cost $1,000. She made it look cheap. Worst of all, Tannaz was divorced, a rare and shameful thing among the Persian diaspora. The focus of Tannaz's middle age was spending her ex-husband's oil fortune and finding inventively passive-aggressive ways of making herself feel better. Kara June, you've lost weight, she said as she air-kissed me, careful not to smudge her caked-on makeup. Shayad, I said to her, showing off one of the bits of Farsi I'd picked up through the years. Maybe was a useful word for someone with commitment issues. Or Shayad, it's the light, she retorted, mimicking me as she pointed lazily in the direction of the orchid-shaped candles floating in the pool. Bobby leaned in to give Tannaz the obligatory kisses. Hello, Mrs. Maliki, how are you? He asked stiffly. Babak, she said with concern. Tina tells me you have writer's block. <laughs> Tina Maliki, Tannaz's Wall Street success of a daughter, had been engaged for four months to a Persian broker descended from the Qajars. Whatever Tanna, whenever Tannaz felt small around the Abadis, she trotted out this fact. How would Tina know that, Bobby asked. I haven't talked to her in over a year. You said it on your Facebook page, I commented. You wrote an update that said you were indulging your writer's block with a marathon of Doris Day movies. Doris Day, Tannaz echoed suspiciously. I saw her once at an overpriced food shop when Tina and I went golfing in Carmel. She has too many dogs. It's not natural. Are you playing golf yet? Tannaz asked Bobby. No, I've managed to resist the temptation, Bobby replied. It's a shame. It would make your parents so happy. And with that, Tannaz moved on to terrorize someone else. Please, Bobby said as he finished his Sieb and Sabzi martini, take me away from here. Take you away? Are you kidding? I love Nowruz. It's my favorite time of year. You've got to be kidding. It's one family obligation after another, Bobby said. Your family is never an obligation. Bobby laughed. If only that were true. So the floor is open to the Q&A. Ask me anything. Mandy, what was my... God, I mean, it's so, it's so hard to remember the original inspiration. I mean, I guess I really wanted to tell the, stor the story of kind of my not my family directly, but my community. And I found it very inspiring to create a character from the outside that was looking into my kind of Persian culture as an outsider, and that was really fun. And as I started to see the culture through her eyes, I started to see all these things that I didn't maybe took for granted and that were really fun. And then I also was fascinated by the idea of, you know, so the story is that Bobby and her 
went to high school together and he's gay and closeted to his family and it's called the walk-in closet and that through all these years his family has assumed they're a couple and so she's kind of walked into his closet and even though it's kind of this fabulous, wonderful, as you can see, this wonderful closet, it is a closet and so she starts to exhibit the behaviors that one does when they're living a secret life. And so I was kind of interested in how an outsider into this world would start how that would be when they started being an insider. I guess that was the inspiration. Any other questions? How long did it take? Well, so, I mean, the original draft, I would say, took probably a year, and that, but that was many, many years ago, and then I put it on a shelf for a very long time, and then at some point last year, I reread it and felt that it was worth revisiting. And so I spent probably another year doing editing and getting back into it with some perspective. And it's interesting because the first draft, which I wrote a long time ago, felt very real to the emotions I was having at that time. And I've come so far since then. I mean, I've had two children. My whole life, my whole life perspective has changed. And so bringing that to it was really interesting because I wanted to maintain the I hope the authenticity of the emotions that I was dealing with then, but with a little more, bit more perspective, do some tweaking and editing that would help the story really gel. Why did you because I love 30-year-old women. They don't have to be blonde. I mean, because, you know, I, I'm not transgender, but I am like a woman inside. I mean, it's like I feel like I identify with women, right? Like when I see a movie, I identify with women. When I read a book, I identify with women. Like it's my points of identification growing up were always women, and maybe that has something to do with being gay in a straight world. Like when I was growing up, there really were no gay characters to identify with. So if you are going to show me a movie when I'm, you know, 10 years old, I'm going to be gravitating to, you know, Joan Crawford. And... <laughs> So there's that part of it, which is just, you know, I think it's more natural to me. Almost everything I've written is from the voice of a woman. And, but I think beyond that, I was, I mean, on a, from a story perspective, I was really interested in this idea of what if, what if there was a woman who entered the life of a Persian gay man who gave, who was that perfect woman that his family wanted. And they did enter this kind of marriage of convenience, but they're, they're both okay with it. Like, their friendship is very real and honest. They both, you know, they're not living in any pretense within their own relationship. And so I was really interested in what effect that would have on her and if she would be able to, you know, live a complete, authentic life within the confines of that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think about how Yes. Um, so that's so that's really interesting. So I mean, so this is really interesting. I mean, since the book came out, I have actually done some outreach with the Iranian community. I've really wanted, I want them to read this book. I directed a short film a couple of years ago that was a coming of age story of a gay Iranian teenager, and it was incredibly difficult to cast the two Iranian male roles. Um, we only, in the end, got one actor to audition for the teenage role. Luckily, he was good. And, you know, for the role of the father, I got vitriolic emails from Iranian actors. And you would think, I mean, some of these men I had seen on YouTube, they did stuff in drag, and yet they send me emails. I mean, there's one guy 
Erica, my producer, remembers. I mean, he sent me this email that was just like, how dare you send me this script? You know, I mean, it was so horrible. And and that short film was really embraced by so many different communities, but not by the Iranian community. And so with this book I've started, I've actually contacted some people, some academics, um, who have told me it's actually the first gay Iranian novel, which is kind of cool. Um, but it's been hard, because even the people who are very open-minded, I spent an hour on the phone two nights ago with a an Iranian social worker who's been very progressive on these issues and who had a gay best friend in the 70s and told me this reminded her of their relationship. And she's going to try and host an event at her house. But she was saying, you know, we really have to present it as something else. Like, we're not going to lead with it being about gay issues. We have to say it's about an immigrant story. It's about second generation children. You know, so I think there's going to be a lot of resistance. I mean, they're n it's not, that community is just not open to gay issues, which is wild because they live in Westwood. I mean, it's like, it's, you know, you just drive, it's like just a little drive from West Hollywood, so, you know, yet. They'll get there. Yeah. Right. I mean, I guess that I would say that's a two-part question. I think anytime I write anything, the first person I write it for is me. Like, because it, it's just, it's a catharsis, right? Like, and honestly, when this book was on a shelf for so long, I didn't necessarily even know if I would ever dust it off. I mean, it was it was a very good experience for me to write this book. And there's been other things I've written that have been great experiences that I never plan on revisiting, but I recognize that they got me somewhere. Um, but then when I when I did decide I wanted to share this with the world, I mean, I think primarily the people who will enjoy this book, of course, are people who are young, urban, exposed to different cultures and curious about, about it. The people I really hope will read this book, you know, are people who, from any immigrant community, really, like it's not just Iranians. If you, you know, if you look at any immigrant community, they're not as far along on these kinds of social issues, especially gay issues. And so if those people can read this and identify with this family and with this story and come, you know, turn the dial a little bit in terms of being more accepting. I mean, that's who I would love to reach and it will be very hard. You know, so give this book to some close-minded immigrants, please. But on the same token, it's like, um, what would you hope the gay community would get from reading this book? Well, I mean, I think the gay community, the gay community in some ways is very kind of heterogeneous too. I mean, there's not that much diversity within it. So I think that they would see, I think oftentimes there's, um, there's like a prevailing mood in the gay community right now, which is we've come beyond certain issues. Like, and I don't think that's true in certain communities. Like, you know, people think that we might be beyond coming out stories or we're beyond, you know, certain issues of self-acceptance. But I think, you know, in certain communities, that's not really the case. So to see and to appreciate that even in this country, there's still households where that's really not the case, where people really do still live in closets. And then, I mean, I think the other thing for the gay community is just to really question what it is to be in the closet. I wrote this piece for The Advocate, I think that was published yesterday, called The Virtual Closet, which is about how I feel that when gay men go online and they crop their faces out on their grinder profiles and, you know, don't show their faces. It's just another closet. Like gay men were raised to be comfortable in a closet, like living a little bit of their life in secret. And that I think is a very destructive thing on the emotional psyche. And so I think that's a 
something that this book explores is sometimes you're in a closet even when you think you're not and even when your life is lovely and you have to just burst out of them all. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> when you were developing the book and writing the first draft, did you see feedback from Karangela at all? Or did you kind of keep it hermetic and gestational? Totally hermetic and gestational. I still have no feedback from Tarangelis, really, other than this Iranian social worker I spoke to the other day. Um, I have no feedback, and I would assume the majority of the feedback would be negative from people who don't really want to look at this issue. But I, but I'm excited, you know, to see what that is. Oh my goodness! I mean, I don't, I'm working on so many things. I don't. It just depends on what. What goes? I'm hoping to make a movie, or two, or three. Um, I don't. I mean, and I'm working on another book, um, and raising kids. And, but yeah, I mean, I would. I actually. I mean, movies are, have primarily been what I've done for my career. But this has been such a good experience. I think there's something exciting with a book where it really is yours, and you know, you really get to share it directly with the world from the way you envision it in your head. And so it's just even in the one week that this book has been out, it's been such a gratifying experience, the few people who I've talked to about it, that I think it's something that I would really like to do again. <laughs> how, how do you, the, the, the youth, the youth culture, how does the youth culture, the Iranian, like, 20-something culture, how do they respond to gay issues and Iran and being also, two parts, like here in the United States and also in Iran, like what right. is, well, how do they, do they acknowledge gay culture? Is there a difference between the younger and the older generation? There is a difference, but there are also many Iranians, I know at least, who are kind of just assuming the mantle of their parents. And I think that that or along gender lines, there's a real divide. I mean, I, I find at least that Iranian women are much more open to gay issues than Iranian men, many of whom kind of end up becoming their fathers. I mean, a lot of the Iranian men I know literally just work for their fathers and then eventually take over their company and get married and live the same life that their fathers lived. Um, and then in Iran, I mean, that's fascinating because I don't I don't directly know that much except for what I hear from my cousins, like my cousin Nina. And I mean, there's a very, there's, I wouldn't say maybe thriving, but there is a definite gay subculture in Iran that exists. I mean, there are gay parties. It's not public. I mean, you can't go to a gay bar, but a friend of mine did a Fulbright scholarship in Dubai and went to Tehran on a cultural visa. And I said to him, you know, you're getting away from your tour group and my cousin Nina is picking you up as soon as you arrive. And he called me at like four in the morning from Tehran and he was like, I'm at a party surrounded by gay men, stoned. What is happening? And I'm like, well, that's my cousin Nina's life. Like Nina lives in Tehran and all her friends are gay. And you know, her other friend was a lesbian who would go out and pretend to be a man in Iran because she didn't want to cover herself. And she got away with it. So, I mean, there is, with, yeah, yeah. So, within Iran, you know, there are these things happening, but 
I think what's hard is that the people that I talk to who are in Iran accept that it has to be behind closed doors. And when you're raised in the West the way I was, that's very hard. Like, I actually met a gay Iranian out here who had moved out here just like a year ago with his family. And he was telling me about how much fun the gay scene in Iran was and how much he misses it. And I'm like, yeah, but weren't you a little scared? And he's like, oh, we went to jail a few times, but who cares? And I'm like, I care. I don't want to go to an Iranian prison. And he was like, yeah, but it was all the gay men together. It was fun. And I was like, yeah, like, it's not my definition of fun to be in an Iranian prison with a group of gay men. Like, I can watch that on my laptop. Thank you. You know? Um, yeah. But it, it exists. Yeah. Publish it in Farsi. Will I publish it in Farsi? What's inter I, I have no plans to publish it in Farsi. It would be, I read very rudimentary Farsi, so I would need somebody to do it. And, um, but it's interesting, my friend who does some translation work said that in Iran, because it's not, there's no real free trade between us and Iran, you, you could get this book in almost any country except for Iran and Cuba and a few others. Um, but he was saying in Iran, if something like this were translated, they would immediately have a PDF of it, scan it, and disseminate it over, and then nobody would buy it. So I was like, nah, I don't know. Maybe I'll translate it to French instead. I mean, <laughs> you know? But I would love it. I mean, it would be exciting if the book was in Iran, other than the fact that, you know, they would kill me, but, you know, they would do that anyway. Yeah. Have you cast it in your head? No. Not really, no. I mean, the Iranian characters are tough because there's not, I mean, there's a few actors that, I mean, especially in the auditions for the short film, um, there aren't that many actors that I'm aware of, unfortunately. That's the reality of Iranian acting. But no, I'm very open on the casting front. Yeah. I was just wondering, looking at the audience, there's not a lot of Iranians in the audience, especially not a lot of gay Iranians in the audience. Are you a gay Iranian? Yes, I am. Woo! <laughs> yeah, where are we? Where are we? I don't know, so I was thinking, you live here, so I was wondering, were you, what was your expected income? Who would be the I, It's about this. I mean, I did not expect gay Iranians to be here, but like, like I said, I mean, I made a short film that was about a coming of age of a gay Iranian, and that film has gotten a lot. It got distributed on DVD, it got distributed online, it played so many festivals. Not a single gay Iranian came, you know, was at one of those screenings and came up to me and I had so many people, but really I don't think not a single gay Iranian. So it's not, I don't know. I wish that we had more of a community. I mean, I don't know that many gay Iranians who are out, you know, really out and willing to say that. Some of them are, but they're not out to their families or they're, you know, not out at work. So, but what's your experience? I mean, do you know? Yeah. But I thought, I don't, I don't live in LA, but I thought this is in LA, maybe it's going to be a strong showing. But. I, yeah, no, I, I mean, like I said, I think that's, it's one of the problems that the book is trying to address, right? Because there obviously are a lot of gay Iranians in this country. Well, no, there are no gays in Iran. Um, yeah, he should visit that prison. <laughs> I, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, w I, wish that it, I wish that it changed, but, you know, I've, I have been out of the closet fully to my family, to everybody for over a decade now, and I haven't seen much change in the Iranian community on that issue since then. And obviously, we all know how rapid the change has been in the mainstream culture at large. 
So I think it is, Iranians are stubborn, you know, right? They're stubborn on everything. So it's going to take a lot to get them to admit that they're wrong on this one. But they will. One Any other? Question? Any other questions? Do you have a question? No, you're saying hi. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would love, I would love to make a movie based on this book. I'm already talking about it to somebody, um, which I would love to do. And I've already written another movie that is set against the backdrop of an Iranian family, and once again is about a woman <laughs> who finds herself enmeshed in their lives. Although it's a very, very different story. Um, but I somehow can't get away from female characters getting caught up in the lives of crazy Iranian <laughs> families. But no, I mean, I would love to do it as a movie, but like I said before, it was, it's very gratifying to have written it as a book first, to just have it be the story that I wanted to tell. Because inevitably when you make a movie, even if you direct it yourself, through the process of actors, editing, music, all of that, it gets, it changes and gets filtered. And I've had that experience before. And there's something really nice about being able to present this to people and saying, this is me, you know. Great, thank That's you. it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.